Fall harvest is right around the corner, but another season is also quickly approaching for all of us here in the U.S. That's right, election season is less than three months away, and we're going to talk some politics today on this episode of the Rural Perspectives Podcast. Hey everyone, I'm Adam Albrecht, your host, and joining us today is Howard Olson, who serves as Senior Vice President, Government and Public Affairs at Egg Country. Welcome, Howard. Hello, Adam. How's everything with you today? Everything's going well today, but uh, in the world of politics, you know, everything can change. So we kind of take it day by day. It, it, it's like a soap opera. You know, I was thinking today, it's like as the world turns or something. It's just, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's crazy sometimes. That's exactly right. Well, we're going to talk about some elections a little bit later, but let's begin by talking about the legislative sessions here in Minnesota, North Dakota and Wisconsin. And we will begin in Minnesota. Now, it's a non-budget year in Minnesota, so there was a brief session a little bit earlier. It ended in May. However, there's been a few special sessions since then. So is there anything of note that has happened or that is happening here, Howard, that uh, listeners should know about? Well, I think there was, Adam, a couple of things in the regular session that, that were positives for agriculture. Um, our Rural Finance Authority, the RFA, um, their funding was reauthorized for $50 million. And this is for low interest loans, particularly for young and beginning farmers um, and so on. Yeah, so that was an important thing to, to see that completed. We did get an ag policy bill that provided some grant money for the rollover protection program. It, it provided some grant money to the Department of Ag for uh, some grain bin storage safety programs, education, and so on. Uh, so I think there was a number of things additional funding for the ag research program agreed and then uh, also $175,000 to pay loan fees to restructure FSA loans for farmers that are in mediation and need some help on on the restructuring of loans so there were some good things that happened I think the most notable that did not happen is that we did not get our uh, federal income tax conformity or the state income tax to conform to federal and uh, particularly in the area of depreciation in Section 179. That was a major issue and item for most of the agriculture industry in, in Minnesota and certainly for business in the Minnesota Chamber of Commerce. Had a cost of about $250 million to it. We started the session with a budget surplus. Everyone thought, no problem, they'll get this done. But it got pushed off and pushed off, and then all of a sudden we were in uh, our uh, coronavirus pandemic, and and all of a sudden the state was in a, a budget deficit and other issues, and it's still hanging out there. Now, there have been a couple special sessions since the end of regular session, and those have kind of seemed to be mixed reviews. And, of course, going forward, there's also a few retirements in Minnesota, specifically within our, the territory that we serve, that are of note. Right. Well, let's, let's touch on these special sessions for just a minute. You know, Governor Walls issued a peacetime emergency order. And the legislature needs to be in session for him to do that. And that order is good for just 30 days. So when, when they uh, ended their session in May, he had to call them back in in June to renew that peacetime order, again in July, and again in August. In fact, uh, just uh, Wednesday, August 12th, they had a special session. And a little bit of fireworks in that, in that one as well. He extended the peacetime emergency order the Senate, of course, uh, has a Republican majority. They voted to repeal it, but they would need the House to go along with that. And the House, of course, has a Democrat or DFL majority, so they would not repeal it. And, of course, the order was extended. Well, 
the Senate then voted to defeat the appointment of the Labor and Industry Commissioner. And, you know, this was an appointment uh, to that position by Governor Walls, and, and they um, voted to, to remove her. Um, the Republicans say that she was not supportive of business in the state during the pandemic. And, of course, the DFL is calling it retribution to Governor Walls for continuing the peacetime emergency order. So a bit of fireworks in the uh, state legislature, kind of similar to what Wisconsin experienced with their egg commissioner last uh, winter, early spring. So anyway, the bonding bill is still out there. That wasn't done uh, in any of the regular session or the special sessions. And that could not be discussed in this uh, session as there were bonds being issued this month. Apparently, there's some rules around that, that, um, that they could not be doing any discussion or voting on a bonding bill as bonds were being issued. And then, of course, we still have the tax conformity issue. That was not discussed either. It's still outstanding. It's uh, pretty much uh, believed that the governor will call a special session again in September, and we're hoping that they'll be able to bring up that tax conformity issue at that time. We could swing back around to these retirements that we're talking about. We're kind of getting into the November elections here. But we do have uh, throughout um, the egg country area here of western Minnesota, there are three retirements in, in our areas, in the, in the House. Um, Dan Fabian, a Republican from District 1A up in the northwest part of the state, is retiring. So we'll see a new face out of that district. Ben Lean, DFLer out of Moorhead, Minnesota, is uh, also retiring out of, the, um, out of the House. So a new face there. And then Bud Nornis out of, uh, from Fergus Falls in District 8A, Republican, that's retiring. So we'll see some brand new faces in at least those districts. We know that one for sure. North Dakota has a little bit of a unique legislative structure for those who are not aware, and that is that they really only gather in session every other year. Now, of course, last year was a like odd number of years, tend to be budget years in states, and so this even year, not a whole lot going in North Dakota, is there? Well, you wouldn't think so, but there are a couple of items. You know, I think a hot topic in North Dakota right now is our um, state roads and bridges and infrastructure there's um, just a whole lot of issues, especially in areas where they've had a lot of rain, a lot of water. I drove down uh, North Dakota State Highway 46 a couple weeks ago through Stutzman County, and I couldn't believe all of the areas of that state highway that had been built up with gravel and were still just a gravel road and narrow at that. And signs where uh, one part of the road had said, take turns, you know, and this is on a state highway. So I think that's a big issue that the state would be looking at. How do they fund that? What do they do? And so on. We've been working with the North Dakota Department of Agriculture on some recommended wording and language for a licensing and bonding bill for uh, grain dealers, uh, elevators, grain buyers, and warehouses. And uh, so they're looking at revamping some of the requirements of those um, licensed grain buyers to better protect uh, farmers that are selling to them, and, and especially on deferred sales. Uh, so they're, ch- gonna, they're proposing changing the licensing fees to increase the guarantee funds and also requiring the elevators, processors, and, and grain buyers to be bonded based on the volume um, or the, the value of the volume that they, that they are um, handling. And then also requiring these buyers to offer an optional performance bond or accounts receivable insurance to producers making these deferred sales. So 
there's we look back over the over the years and we hear stories of elevators that have gone bankrupt or out of business and and other grain buyers and so on in that situation and and uh, the farmers left where they've maybe had delivered uh, product to them delivered grain to them and haven't been paid yet and now they have no way of of collecting that money so they're looking to just uh, shore that up a little bit and make it a better program and system to better protect the farmers so we've been working closely with the ag department on that. You know, we've got a governor's race coming up there in the fall, and the Democrats have nominated uh, Shelley Lentz. She's a veterinarian from Kildare, North Dakota. She'll be running against Governor Burgum. Looking at her resume, appears to be extremely smart. She has a PhD in neuropharmacology. Neuro, excuse me, we'll get that word right, neuropharmacology. But I'm afraid, you know, it's going to be an uphill battle for her. It's a very much a Republican state, and North Dakota has, they have not had a Democrat governor since George Sinner in 1992. So 28 years of Republican governors. Um, but just a little preview of the possible governor race in North Dakota. Absolutely. Well, let's now travel back east to our friends in the Badger State, Wisconsin, like Minnesota, like North Dakota. It was not a budget year, so maybe a little bit quieter. There was a session early on, but what is there to report out of Wisconsin? Well, I think one of the neat things that Wisconsin did uh, is that they took part of the funding that they received from the one of the, the COVID packages, specifically the CARES, uh, the CARES Act or CARES package, and uh, took $50 million of that and provided it as direct aid payments to farmers. And uh, they had gone through one round of distribution of this. Basically, um, minimal requirements is just if you had been impacted by the coronavirus in some way. Um, and I think every farm has because of our drop in prices, whether it was, whether it was milk or hogs or grain, um, everybody's been impacted. You could receive a, a payment from the state, and it wasn't a lot, but but right now any little bit helps. So, so that was a, um, you know, I think a good program that they came out with. Now they're offering a second round of that program. There's another 8.4 million dollars yet to be distributed from that, and they just opened that up uh, last week, August 10th. And uh, there's an online application. You go to the uh, egg department website, the DATCAP website. And uh, that online application will be open until August 24th. So if farmers have not yet signed up for that, um, you know, I'd strongly encourage them to, to get online and, and look it up and, and go ahead and do that. So that was, a, I think, a good thing that came out of Wisconsin. I think the next part of Wisconsin is going to be the November and going to be kind of interesting to watch. Absolutely. Well, you know, we, we talk about how it's been a little bit quieter on the state level, but it's been anything but at the national level, which is where we're going. Uh, coronavirus has really dominated the political landscape since it made its way here to the U.S. Howard, can you just give us a little bit of an update on where we stand on maybe the next round of, of coronavirus aid and, and, of course, all of the other legislation that kind of piggybacks off that? Sure. There's there's a lot to it, and there's no way that I can cover all of it, I, and I'm just not even familiar with all of it. But I think we'll take a look a little bit at, at what's in the, the different bills for agriculture. The House of Representatives passed the HEROES Act in May, and they were very specific about their benefits to agriculture. They were um, putting in six, about $16.5 billion of direct payments to ag, um, and, and very specific about how it was to be used. The House Ag Committee Chairman Colin Peterson um, did not want to give the Secretary of Agriculture just a, a blank check. They wanted to be sure it was used for specific pro programs that maybe missed out in the first 
uh, in the last round. So there was um, money specifically for livestock and poultry depopulation, money for the dairy program, money for supplemental dairy margin coverage, uh, ethanol and renewable fuels, and they were very specific about uh, 45 cents per gallon and $2.5 billion to ethanol, and then the cotton textile mills. Also, they wanted to get the direct payments uh, to producers as a supplement to the CFAP program, the Coronavirus Food Assistance Program, and uh, cover some commodities that were missed, make some additional payments for those that were covered. And then they wanted also to try and adjust it for local prices, you know, the, the, for example, to kind of account for the difference in basis in the different areas, and also specialized varieties and the organic crop prices. So, so they were very specific about how that money was to be spent. Um, they also wanted to expand the CRP by, by expanding the SHIP program, which is part of the 2018 Farm Bill of uh, 50,000 acres. They wanted to increase that to 5 million acres. Um, and that'll be a, a controversial subject, but I think an interesting uh, take and a possible solution to take a little bit of land out of production and maybe help our, our huge supplies that we have. Um, on the flip side, the Senate uh, has a HEALS, what they call the HEALS bill, that has been introduced but has not been passed yet. They're having trouble getting agreement on that one. They have $20 billion of direct payments for agriculture and just a very broad brush stroke on that one. They just say we'll give $20 million or $20 billion, excuse me, with a B, to the Office of the Secretary of Agriculture to be available until expended. And, um, and, and they do kind of broadly say they wanted to include producers, growers, specialty crops, livestock, and so on, but, but they're not very specific about it. So really leaving it at the discretion of the Secretary of Ag. The Senate bill also simplifies the forgiveness process for the Paycheck Protection Program loans for any loans under $150,000. Now, we did a lot of PPP loans at Ag Country, and, and I don't have the average dollar amount right off the top of my head, but it was something like right around $20,000 was the average size of the, the PPP loans. And uh, having this forgiveness process simplified where it's a one-page statement that the farmer signs would sure make it a lot easier for everybody. Senator Kramer from North Dakota was one of the sponsors of that part of that bill. Uh, so we like that. We're supportive of it. We'd like to see that in there. But getting back to these two bills, um, the Heals Act hasn't been voted on yet in the Senate, uh, to, and they're, they're at quite an impasse right now. They, they want to try and get a bill that the, the, both the Republicans and the Democrats and the White House can all agree on, um, but their challenges, um, challenges on, the, on the major parts of the bill, basically, essentially starting with the price tag, the House Heroes Bill is about a $3 trillion price tag, and the Senate Heels bill is a $1 trillion price tag. So they've got to come to that agreement. I think a couple of areas in the agriculture piece where there's some differences is, again, I noted the specific allocations of the House bill versus the blank check of the Senate bill. And again, our, our House Ag Committee Chairman, Congressman Peterson, um, doesn't like the blank check idea, but we'll see where that comes about and, and where it lands. Also, the Democrats would like a temporary increase in the SNAP benefits, the food, you know, the, uh, excuse me, the, the food stamp, uh, supplemental nutrition benefits um, of 15 percent. 
And uh, of course, the, Democrat, the Republicans at first are opposed to any kind of increase in, in SNAP, but I think they're starting to come around. And several Senate Republicans have suggested that this would probably be, be a good thing in light of what we're dealing with and, and uh, the amount of people that are unemployed now with, uh, due to COVID and so on. So um, word on the street is that if it doesn't get done, done in August, it'll be brought back up when both houses return to Washington in September. Uh, you know, they're on recess now for, for August, but, but many of the uh, House and Senate leaders in the White House are, are meeting um, right now. So we'll see where this goes, but uh, it's going to be interesting that um, I guess I've been putting that in my uh, what to watch in the next few weeks column. And is there anything that the farm credit is specifically focusing on and, and working on in Washington? We are. You know, we're working with um, with some of the senators in Washington to get some help in areas of the, the FSA guaranteed loan program. We gathered together a group of individuals from farm credits around the country and said, you know, what are some things that we think could be done and specifically around lending that might help the situation here uh, out in rural America and, and help our farmers. And we went right away to the FSA Guaranteed Loan Program. We have a number of, of recommendations that we're, that we're making uh, just as a, they're, they're temporary, temporary changes to the Guaranteed Loan Program. And it's starting with waiving the origination fee on the FSA Guaranteed Loan. There's a 1.5%, 1.5% origination fee uh, that goes to FSA for making these loans. And when you're at the point that, that you're restructuring and you're using FSA guaranteed loans, uh, you're in a situation where, where you need more cash and working capital and have to take 1.5% of that loan and use it towards an origination fee. Well, it just doesn't seem quite right. So let's waive that fee. We'd like to see an increase in the total amount of the loan. Right now, the maximum amount of the FSA guaranteed loan was set at $1.75 million in the 2018 Farm Bill. Now, that gets adjusted each year for inflation, so it's actually at $1.776 million now. But we'd like to see that increased to $2.5 or even $3.5 million. It just allows us, if, if, we can, if we can put more FSA guaranteed loans in place for a particular farmer, it just allows us to go further with that farmer our underwriting requirements, um, I guess we can go further into our underwriting requirements and help them get a little bit more money back into their operation to replace some of that working capital that's been eaten up. The third one would be to change some of the review requirements for the FSA. When we do an FSA guaranteed loan, we have to then send it to the local FSA office and then they review it and approve it. And um, we're what's called a preferred lender provider. There's three levels. We're on the top level, the, the most elite level of a preferred lender provider. And we'd like to see where those that are preferred lender providers would just have some kind of an automated approval process so that we don't have to wait for that loan to get a, um, approved by FSA. This would just help to get money out into the farmer's hands a lot quicker. And it would help to reduce some of that workload at the local FSA office too, at the, at the county office. Uh, so it'll allow the FSA to focus more on the other lender types and on the direct loans that they're working with. It would give our lenders more authority to finalize these and, and again, just get the funds out to the farmer quicker. So we've worked with a number of farm credits around the country. We've asked these farm credits to contact their senators that are on the Senate Ag Committee or the Senate Appropriations Committee. We've contacted our senators in, in our states and have specifically met with Senator Hoven's um, staff, Senator Hoven from North Dakota, 
and walk through some of these. Uh, and, and they like the ideas. They're taking them back to the senator. Uh, hopefully we can get some of these into the next um, bill, the next COVID relief package. Um, again, we just think with all of the challenges that there have been out there on the farm, whether it's uh, in, the, in the dairy area and the dumping of milk or the livestock, the pork and poultry with the um, depopulation of, their, of herds and flocks and so on, uh, and, and the challenges that we're going to have in the crop sector now as we come into fall and into harvest and into winter, we just think we're going to see a lot of loan servicing activity and a lot of rebalancing that will need to be done and uh, just looking for ways to, to further help the farmers and get a little more money out into their hands and get it out a little faster. Well, the good news is that agriculture's always been kind of recognized as one of those bipartisan areas where both parties can, can really come together. The one thing, of course, that is kind of challenging this year is the fact that it's a presidential election year. And so it's bad enough during regular election years, but presidential adds a little bit more to it. And and that's what we're going to kind of transition into now is, is taking a, a, a little bit of a look ahead, which even though there's not quite three months until the election in political terms, that's that could be a long time. A lot can still happen. But uh, let's start at the very top. Obviously, President Trump is up for re-election this year, and he is going to take on Joe Biden. And now Joe Biden just as of recently announced his vice president pick. So uh, the tickets are kind of set. But uh, Howard, I'd ask you what's going to happen. But after seeing how 2016 turned out, I'm not sure anyone can truly get a grip on this race so uh, let's just let's yeah, and, just go ahead yeah and true confession here adam i am not an election nerd i don't track this stuff like some of these uh you know some of the gurus in in washington do but i think it is going to be interesting and you know i mentioned a little bit earlier that wisconsin uh, wisconsin could very well be a hotbed for the presidential election um it, it's going to be crazy in august the, the democratic national convention is coming up what next week right and, uh, and that's in Milwaukee. And Trump has announced that he's going to be in Wisconsin and campaigning this month. And, and then we see that, that uh, Vice President Pence is going to be there and campaigning. And boy, Wisconsin's going to be like the headline news on the, on, the, on the national nightly news programs for all of next week. So if, if you're in Wisconsin, just get ready. The, what happens on the presidential election and especially the voting in Wisconsin could very much impact the Wisconsin legislature, too, in the fall. Uh, so I, I do want to just, well, as long as we're talking about it, Adam will just touch on that. But, yep. but it's felt that, you know, first of all, if the Republicans can pick up three seats in the Senate and the Assembly, they'll have a two-third majority in both houses, which would allow them to override any of Governor Evers' vetoes that he might have. So they pass a bill, the governor doesn't like it, he vetoes it, they'll have the, the majority vote necessary to override that. Um, you know, and I just, J.R. Ross of Wisconsin politics said a couple weeks ago that if Trump does well, the state Republicans could also do well. So, so it's an important state, it's a blue collar state, um, it's a little smaller and a little more litmus, litmus test type than say a Michigan or Pennsylvania and other swing states. And I think it's just important to watch there. If, if Trump is not winning Wisconsin, he's not winning the others. And uh, one other thing that just came out, Tuesday's um, Marquette University Law School poll showed that among likely voters, Biden holds a 49 percent 
advantage over Trump, 49 to 44% advantage over Trump. So this is going to be one state, I think, that the rest of the country will have an eye on and be watching. And, and uh, I think if any of, um, any of our listeners here um, have an interest in this, uh, I'd suggest they just kind of tune in to, to what's happening and what's happening with that Marquette University Law School poll and uh, keep an eye on that. Right. Absolutely. There are a lot of ramifications down ballot. And of course, uh, those who turn up to vote usually get what they want. So that's just a little plug for showing up and voting in November. But if if President Trump were to win a, a second term compared to the first term, what is what are kind of the prevailing voices saying possibly could happen? Sure. You know, a, a big part of it uh, is going to depend on what happens in the Senate. If the president wins, if President Trump is reelected and the House stays Democrat and the Senate stays Republican, um, we're, we're going to see a lot of the same that we have now. We're going to continue to see a focus on the U.S. trade imbalances, increased farm immigration enforcement. Um, but the industry would remain or the administration would remain very friendly to industry, you know, with agencies like the EPA siding on the side of the egg industry and and uh, Congress likely to continue commodity support programs and so on. Um, we'll, we'll probably continue to see trade disputes, likely lead to more tariffs on U.S. ag products. Uh, but it's also felt by, by many that um, the economic impact payments will likely be continued. Now, I'm not sure I'm in that camp. I'm, I am concerned that uh, a couple of things there are, are budget deficits that we're going to be talking about, and people are already, the budget deficits that we're getting from the COVID relief packages and the fact that 2021 is a non-election year. I think that could dampen some of the support payment spirit. So we'll see what happens there. Now, is it possible that, the, that President Trump wins the uh, presidency and the Democrats win the Senate? Uh, I guess it's possible, but probably a pretty low likelihood. Uh, if Trump wins the presidency, we probably will continue with the Republicans controlling the Senate. So, uh, obviously, Joe Biden is the, the candidate on the Democratic side. He was a former vice president, part of the Barack Obama administration, so not overly far or, or long ago. So it's still relatively fresh in people's minds. If Joe Biden were to win, would it resemble kind of what the, the Barack Obama presidency was you know, doing towards agriculture? That, yeah, um, very much would be, especially if we're split on the Houses again. If the Senate stays with the Republicans and the House with the Democrats, uh, this would pick up where President Obama left off. Um, and we're going to see the, uh, the administration working on the farm program eligibility restrictions, restrictions, uh, stricter animal welfare standards, and so on. They're going to support the egg safety net, but, they're, but they'll work to decrease the farm program income for larger farms. And and uh, th- this is just, you know, the speculation and belief from what we've seen historically. Um, but we just feel it'll be less industry friendly in labor and environmental disputes. Um, we think that we'll see some tightening of farm program income and payment limitations. We're going to see more conversations and discussions on tightening the crop insurance, uh, putting putting um, uh, means testing to it and premium subsidy caps and so on. And uh, perhaps increase the cap on the H-2A visa program as well. So it won't be that it won't be, um, you know, not friendly to agriculture. It just it probably isn't going to be friendly to the larger farms that we have throughout so much of the, the Midwest and the Northern Plains. 
Now, if uh, Biden were to win the presidency and and did it in such a strong fashion that the Democrats also took control of the Senate, um, then this would probably result. This is going to result in a push for the Democratic wish list items, which is things like expanded supports uh, to move more farmers into organic production, increased conservation spending. Uh, they're going to focus more on immigrant farm worker reform. They'll be able to move a- along a lot of the things that the Democrats would like to do, and and including stricter animal welfare standards. Again, probably going to be less industry friendly in labor and environmental disputes. And we may see decreased farm program income for the larger farms. So there's, there's about three different scenarios here that, that we think could happen. And uh, each of them a little bit different for how it would impact agriculture. So we talked a little bit about uh, Wisconsin politics and, and the fact that um, within Wisconsin, neither of their two U.S. senators are up for re-election. The governor's not up for re-election. So in terms of the statewide elections, it's, it's kind of quiet outside of the presidency and, and how that impacts things down ballot, which, of course, everybody within the U.S. House of Representatives is up. However, it doesn't really appear that there are um, too many uh, hot uh, districts or highly contested districts there. Also, in North Dakota, neither of the senators, the U.S. senators, are up for re-election. We already discussed a little bit and kind of you, you gave um, some good history on the the last time a Democrat actually won the governorship there in uh, Bismarck. But uh, in Minnesota, though, there is a couple of races that have some very large, significant impact or potential impact, uh, specifically on agriculture. And I think the most high-profile one is Congressman Peterson in Minnesota's 7th District, which falls largely in line with Egg Country's territory. Now, Congressman Peterson is, as many people know, the current House Egg Committee chairperson, and his challenger is actually former Lieutenant Governor Michelle Fishbach. So let's just talk about this race a, a little bit and and. I think there are some trends that are going against Congressman Peterson. And in 2016, then-candidate Trump actually had a margin of victory of 30 points over Hillary Clinton. There's also the fact that the congressman's margin of victory has tightened over the last three elections. And also, you add in the experience of his challenger with name ID. And I think that leads to a rather close or what could be seen as a very close race. Yeah, you know, the winners in this one are going to be the uh, advertisers, the media, and so on that are going to get all of this election campaign money funneled into them. Minnesota's going to be a big, uh, there's going to be a lot of money dumped into Minnesota uh, in, in, uh, by the Republicans to try and defeat Congressman Peterson. And because they see this as a, as a seat that they, can, that they can flip for the reasons that you stated. I think what was his margin of victory in the last election? Like four, four points or something? Yep, right around four points. Uh, yeah, yeah, very, very close. Uh, and she does, as you mentioned, have the name recognition. She seems to be, you know, a fighter. Uh, I, I don't, I don't know her personally, uh, but just watching the forum, the the candidate forum at FarmFest last week. You know, she stated that she's certainly an advocate for our farmers and, and uh, wants to help our farmers. Um, I think the, the problem that we've got for all of agriculture, uh, and, and especially for Minnesota, uh, or the challenge, um, is that Congressman Peterson is a very high-ranking member in, in, um, in the Democrat Party in the House of Representatives in Washington. And uh, as you mentioned, he is chairman of the House Agriculture Committee. 
that's a great position of power for us as a state and for agriculture. He's such a super strong advocate for agriculture and has done a lot for ag through the years. Um, you know, he's a fighter for crop insurance. He's a fighter for the, the farm programs and, and uh, the farm supports. Uh, he's a fighter for the ethanol industry. So I think if, if, if he were to lose this race, I, I, I think it would be a loss for agriculture uh, for a while just because of, of his rank and position and, and leading the House Ag Committee. We're going to be coming into uh, the, the start have conversations on the next uh, farm bill. You know, that's 2023 is, the, is when the next farm bill um, would be up. And that's, we're going to start having those conversations and, uh, and so on with that in the right after, well, probably starting next year in 2021. So um, it's going to be a challenge for them. We'll, we'll have to see what happens. Yeah, and, and there's no question about it, um, even as as well as Michelle Fishbach and, and, and everything that she brings, there's no question that the congressman is going to be hard to beat. He's been there for nearly 30 years, so this is definitely not his first rodeo. He also is considered a blue dog Democrat, or for those who are unaware what that means, a conservative Democrat, plus, as you pointed out, that he has the backing of the ag industry pretty heavily. So, yeah, it's... Well, and, it's yeah, and it, I, you know, and I think as, as, as red or Republican as the seventh district is you know i think the thinking of the the people of most of the people in the seventh district or the thinking of colin peterson aligns very well with most of the people in that district because he is a centrist as you said he's he's a blue dog he's a, a more of a, a moderate democrat uh and, and he votes uh, against his party many times you know so definitely a race to watch but there is one other statewide race to mention in Minnesota, and that features Senator Tina Smith and her challenger, former Congressman Jason Lewis. Senator Smith does sit on the Senate Ag Committee, so this race is something to note within our industry. And and again, it's going to be very close. So far, the polls have suggested that Tina Smith has about a three-point lead, but three points is usually within the margin of error. So yeah, we're we kind of got a lot going on in Minnesota in terms of the egg policy that that could very well shape uh, the next Congress. Yeah, we sure do. And you know, we're North Dakota and Minnesota, Wisconsin. We're sitting so well with agriculture representation in Washington, with both Senator Smith and Senator Klobuchar on the Senate Ag Committee. Senator Baldwin from Wisconsin is on the Senate Ag Committee. Senator Hoven from North Dakota is on that committee. Senator Hoven is on the Senate Appropriations Committee and chair of the Ag sub, uh, Subcommittee, the Ag Approps Subcommittee. Uh, and then Congressman Peterson, of course, is on the, um, the House, uh, chairman of the House Ag Committee. Uh, I think we have a few other um, Minnesota representatives that are on the House Ag Committee. Uh, you know, so we're well represented there. And, and when we start replacing these people, then um, all of that gets upset, and and now we might not have that representation for agriculture that that we're enjoying right now. Well, Howard, anything can happen in these next couple months, and um, we'll certainly keep everybody posted, and and no doubt record another session, maybe a, an after an election session coming up. But just want to thank you very much for spending some time with us and talking politics. It, it it's interesting, Adam. I just share one quick story here, and that. The, you know, I said I'm not a, an election nerd. That There's people that just track this like daily point by point. Uh, but I was in Washington, D.C. in October of an election year. And I don't remember, it might have been the presidential election. 
um, a few years back. It might have been for President Obama's election second term. I don't remember exactly what. But when we'd go out in the evening and, and, and visiting with, with the different um, staffers and so on that, that were there, um, the conversations wasn't about the presidential election. It was around all of the different House and Senate elections from around the countryside and and what it would mean for the different committees. If this person was elected in this in this House district in Minnesota, and then who would be the chairman of that particular committee? And and it reminded me of of what what so many of us do around basketball tournaments in March and the March Madness and how you fill out this whole bracket for March Madness. Well, that's what the election nerds and gurus were doing in Washington at that time. And, and who's going to be uh, filling what seat and, and so on. It, it, it's just fascinating how some of these people get into some of this. But, but I, I just thought that was kind of interesting to observe and, and uh, hear some of those conversations. So. Oh, there's no question about it. All elections have consequences. So, you know, and, and ultimately, as I, I pointed out before earlier, those who show up and vote usually get what they want. So, yeah, it's it's certainly something to, to keep track of. But, no, I haven't filled out my um, November Madness tournament, I guess, bracket yet. <laughs> Say, let me make one other plug here. You said vote, you know, get out and vote. And I did hear uh, a, a person on the radio the other day. She is our county chairman of the League of Women Voters. And I thought she had a great recommendation. She said uh, they're strongly encouraging absentee ballots this year. And uh, part of the reason is that any of the elections in the polling stations, polling places are, are going to take longer because the workers are going to have to clean each each uh, polling station or ballot machine in between every every individual going in there. And and so in Minnesota, they're just strongly encouraging using uh, absentee ballots. And and I think that's just a, a good way to to get your voice heard and be able to stay home that day and not have to worry about masks and COVID and so on, and um, still still have a voice in, in what we're doing. It's a whole different world with COVID, but thank you very much, Howard. Appreciate it. Howard Olson serves as the Senior Vice President of Government and Public Affairs at Egg Country. That's a wrap on this episode of the Rural Perspectives Podcast, which is a production of Egg Country Farm Credit Services. To get more great content, please visit www.eggcountry.com. <laughs>